Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that that prayer, that cry of glory to you would be one that we never grow tired of. We anticipate one day in heaven, in glory, singing to you and praising you, giving you the glory for what you've done in not only creating all that is, but bringing redemption and salvation to us through your son. And Lord, as we celebrate that story, the provision of salvation through Christ, as we remember what you did this Christmas season, I pray that it would stir up within our hearts a longing and an eagerness and a joy that spills out in worship and praise to you that you might receive the glory that you deserve. So Lord, move in our hearts this morning. Pray that you would bring us back to the truths that we stand on, the truths that give us life, that you would nourish our faith, strengthen our faith, that we might love you and worship you as we ought. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Well, you might have picked up on this, but we're shifting gears because we're approaching Christmas. Always love singing those songs that rehearse that story and bring us back to the birth of Christ. Because of that, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our sort of systematic exposition of the Gospel of Luke. Um, But I do want to point you to Luke chapter 2. You can open there because Luke chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 gives us a phrase that I would like to be sort of the theme verse and the phrase upon which we as a church really meditate throughout the next several weeks. Luke chapter 2, this familiar story as Jesus is born and the angels come and make this announcement to shepherds who are out in the field. Chapter 9, or verse 9, rather, we find that an angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, as we can only imagine. And then listen to what the angel says in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy. Jesus came to bring salvation for us. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. This is the message of Christmas. And while this is indeed good news, for many of you, this is not new news. You've heard this before. You've sung these songs. You've rehearsed this story time and time again. You've taught it to your children, perhaps even taught it to your grandchildren, maybe even, for a few, your great-grandchildren. Which means that perhaps the shocking reality of the incarnation and the startling grace of the Messiah's birth, it may not always stir up great joy in you. There are obstacles to that joy. The pressures and the difficulties, the trials of life, the sorrows and the griefs that we carry, they can threaten that joy. We live life in a fallen world that is broken by sin and marked by death. There are many temptations that we battle against. The world offers to us, sells us, really, alternative sources of joy, and our flesh is easily persuaded to drink from cisterns that cannot hold any water. We look for joy, but we look for joy over and over again in places where it really cannot be found. 
And then there's all the distractions of life, the familiarity of this good news that a savior has been provided for us. It's easily drowned out by the noise of the holiday season, the travel, the traditions, family, gift shopping, meal planning, all good things. Those are all good things, but they are nowhere near as good as the good news about Jesus. And when those lesser good things are disconnected from Christ, the greatest good, and when they are embraced as a substitute for Christ, we all know that they are incapable of producing in us a lasting joy. So what is the solution to this? How can we, this season, taste the joy that the angels announced to the shepherds that night? How can the story of Christmas, perhaps something that may feel to you a bit stale, perhaps something that perhaps strikes you as as a bit sentimental, how can this story become once again a source of great joy? Only by a fresh return to the simple but glorious truths of the gospel, truths that are at the center of the Christmas story. This good news of great joy that we rehearse at this time of year, it needs to be heard again. The 17th century English minister, William Gurnall, wrote this, that the reason why many poor souls have so little heat of joy in their hearts is that they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their mind. The further a soul stands from the light of truth, the further he must needs be from the heat of comfort. What I aim to do over the next few weeks is is really attempt to shepherd our souls back to this true and lasting joy. So these sermons, as I said, we're stepping away from our systematic sort of exposition of Luke. And instead, what I'd like to do is simply lead us into an exercise on meditation, a reflection, as we reflect on the joy of Christ that helps us draw near this gospel message, the light and the heat of the good news. So today I want to start by considering, first of all, this will be sort of the theme for this morning's message, the source of that joy. What is the source of this Good news of great joy, which is for all people. I want to look this morning, not necessarily even at the gift, not yet, we'll do that in the next two weeks, but to consider the giver, to consider God. Because this good news of great joy is ultimately a God-centered joy. It's a joy in God himself. You see, in the Christmas story, God is revealing himself to us. It's profoundly an act of revelation, And as God reveals himself to us, he is then drawing us into relationship with himself so that we come to know him, so that we come to experience joy in him. In Psalm 1611, we're told, the psalmist writes, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, 15 says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You see, God himself is the only source of true and lasting joy, which means that to experience this joy, God must be known. God must be seen for who he is. That's why the Apostle Paul prays like this in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled with all the fullness of God is what we were made for. It is what we were saved unto. And it's the only thing that can satisfy our souls. It is the only source of true and lasting joy. It is to know God. So how can Christmas help us rejoice in God? How can we trace the light, the rays of light, as it were, back to the sun? How can we follow these rivers of mercy that we see in the gospel, that we see in Christ, and trace them all the way back to the original spring? Well, I'd like to share this morning three ways in which the gospel story, the Christmas story, fuels a God-centered joy. And the first is this. Number one, the coming of Jesus into the world displays the providence of God. That's how God is revealing himself to us in the Christmas story. The coming of Jesus into the world displays the providence of God. The world where the shepherds lived, the same world that we live in, the world into which Jesus was born is a world, as we know, that is steeped in sin, steeped in suffering. It's a world that is under a curse. That's reality. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the bad news. But the good news that the angel was bringing, this good news of great joy for all the people, is this, that God was not content to leave his world that way. God is taking action. That's really what providence is. Providence is God's sovereign power at work in the world to advance his purposes. It's not just that God knows all things, including the future. It's that he governs all things. God is directing, providing, upholding everything in the universe at every moment and doing so in such a way that guarantees that his purposes come to pass. That is the providence of God. And the birth of Jesus demonstrates this providence, that our God is not a far-off God, We do not serve a God who simply wound up the world like a giant clock and now he sits back with his arms folded, with his hands in his pockets and just sort of watches everything happen. No, the God that we worship is a God who is sovereignly sustaining all things and directing all things to their appointed ends, all according to his perfect plan. We see this providence on display in the birth of Jesus specifically in the fulfillment of so many promises. It leaves us with the inescapable conclusion that this is God's plan, that God is at work, that he is doing something in the coming of Jesus that he had promised to do, that he had planned to do in eternity past. The promise was that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be a descendant from the tribe of Judah, that he would come through the kingly line of David. And that's exactly who he is. Both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke record for us the ancestry of Jesus, his genealogy showing that him being the Messiah and his family lineage is no accident. This was all God's plan. By the way, the very existence of the nation Israel at this point in history, as you read the scriptures, is a testament to God's providential preservation of his chosen people. Micah promised the Old Testament prophet, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we see that God moved the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to issue a census. 
right when Mary was nine months pregnant. Imagine that. Which forced Joseph and a very pregnant Mary to travel to Bethlehem, ensuring that Micah's prophecy would be fulfilled. We see that at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. It's no accident. God is moving the heart and the mind of an emperor to bring about the exact fulfillment of his plan and his promise. Isaiah had promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. We know that Mary was told by the angel that the Holy Spirit is the reason why she was going to be with child. We see that in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that all this takes place to fulfill what Isaiah said, that the virgin would conceive and bear child, and that they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the providence of God. He's fulfilling his promises. He's ordering history. He's bringing about the fulfillment of exactly what he intends to take place. There's no other explanation. And the birth of Jesus is only the beginning of such promises being fulfilled. Throughout his life, Jesus would fulfill countless Old Testament prophecies. He would enter Jerusalem on, the donkey, on a donkey's colt, Like Zechariah chapter 9 tells us, he was betrayed by a friend, just like Psalm 41 verse 9 promises. His betrayal was for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. The money that he was betrayed with was used to purchase a potter's field, Zechariah chapter 11. The Messiah died a sacrificial death for us, just like Daniel chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 53 said he would. He even said specific words on the cross was mocked. People gambled for his clothes, just like Psalm 22 prophesied. He died among criminals, but his burial was with the wealthy, just like Isaiah 53 said it would be. And he rose from the dead, just like Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 testified he would. And we could go on and on and on, again and again and again. All of this testifies to God's providence. It's all according to his plan. He is the one ordering history to bring about the fulfillment of his promises and his purposes. This is the God that we worship. That's who he is. That's what he is like. And listen, the God whose providence is on display in the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus, He is still in control today. He is the same God today. And he's still working all things together for good, like Romans 8 tells us. He is still working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, verse 11. And this is a truth to rejoice in. This is something that sustains joy. You see, God is in control not just when things are going well, He's not only in control when the angels are singing and the wise men are bringing their gifts. God is also in control when an evil king like Herod is trying to kill Jesus. God is in control not only when the crowds welcome Jesus and cry Hosanna and they lay down their coats and lay down palm branches as he enters Jerusalem. But God is also in control when he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, when he's abandoned by the rest when he is slandered and wrongly condemned, when he's beaten and mocked. God is in control when his hands and his feet 
that once were in a manger or nailed to a cross. God is in control when the Son of God breathes his last labored breath and dies. Acts chapter 4, verse 27, those early believers acknowledged that truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God is always in control. So consider the one who ordered all of history to bring about your salvation through his son. Consider that he sees you, he knows the details of your life, and he has worked in history to bring about salvation for you. And he continues to work today, wielding his sovereign authority for your good, to work all things together for good. And the fact that that our God is in control, the fact of his good and gracious providence, that is something that we can rejoice in. That is something that fuels a God-centered joy. There's a second way the Christmas story fuels God-centered joy because the coming of Jesus into the world also demonstrates the wisdom of God. The birth of Christ demonstrates the wisdom of God. Think about this. If you or I were to be made sovereign for a day, if we were to be given absolute control over all things in the universe, that would be a terrible idea. And here's why. Because you and I lack the wisdom to know what the best possible plan is. We don't understand or know all the, all the possible scenarios that we might ordain to bring about the best of all results. We could never determine the best course of action. But God is infinite in wisdom. And he knows the best of all possible plans. He knows the best of all possible scenarios. He knows how to move things forward in such a way that his glory is magnified as it couldn't be in any other way. But also our joy is made full to a degree that it couldn't possibly be otherwise. And that infinite, perfect, incomparable wisdom is demonstrated in the birth of Christ. We see God's wisdom in the timing of Christ's arrival. Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. At the fullness of time, at the perfect time, not too soon, not too late, but at the ideal moment in all of history for the Savior to enter the world, that's when God sent his son, Jesus Christ. The religious climate was perfect. Israel was hungry for a Messiah. There was a renewal movement of people going back to the law, seeking holiness, seeking righteousness, seeking the kingdom of God. The political climate was perfect. As Jesus was born during the Pax Romana, this golden age of the Roman Empire, this little 200-year period of peace and prosperity and stability that's tucked right into the middle of all of these empires rising and falling. This was the perfect time for Jesus to be born. During this time, international travel was made easy. All the borders were open because Rome was ruling throughout the known world, and they were building this incredible infrastructure. Some of those roads still exist today that were built during that period of the Roman Empire. The cultural climate was perfect as well. The Greek language was spoken throughout the entire known world, and all of this proved to be the perfect timing for the gospel message to really go viral. 
to spread like wildfire. It was the perfect time for the New Testament to be written because everyone could read it in the Greek language. Copies were distributed throughout the Middle East, throughout Western Asia, throughout Europe, throughout Northern Africa. God's wisdom is seen in the perfect timing of Christ's arrival. But his wisdom is also seen in the perfect manner of Christ's arrival, in the glorious mystery of the incarnation. This is one of those truths we sing about at Christmas, one of those truths you might study and think about, but it's one that we can never fully get our heads around. It's amazing. John 1 verse 14 puts it this way, that the word, the pre-incarnate word, the living truth who is the second person of the Godhead, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. God taking onto himself human flesh and a human nature. The baby in the manger is God. The sheer humility of such an action by God is stunning to us. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The humility of Christ is seen not that he lost any of his godness, but in that he added humanness to his, his person. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in God's wisdom, his perfect wisdom, it would be through the means of this incarnation that salvation would be made possible. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. As Jesus humbles himself, as he empties himself, as he takes on the form of a servant and becomes a man, that poverty that he experienced was the only way that we might experience the riches of his glory and his grace. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He partook of the same things you and I partake of, flesh and blood, fatigue, pain, hunger, growth, puberty, <laughs> all the weirdnesses of being human and being flesh, Christ took that upon himself. Hebrews 2.17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We struggle to understand the incarnation, how Jesus can be fully God and yet also be fully man, how he can have two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and yet be one in his person it's hard for us to understand that, but God understands it. In his infinite wisdom, he understands it perfectly. And what's more, he performs it. That is wisdom. And through this mysterious union of the divine and human natures, God brings about our salvation. This truth of the incarnation really leads us into the profound wisdom of the gospel itself. The angels told the shepherds, unto you is born this day, a savior, but how? The question is how? How can this baby, how can this child save his people from their sins? 
as the angel told Joseph. How can a sinful man, sinful mankind, be made right with God? It's only through the substitutionary death on a cross, the death that this child would die. The God-man would lay down his life in our place and take our punishment on himself. The incarnation leading to the cross is the only way that God's justice and God's mercy can both be satisfied. And this is God's wisdom to provide exactly the solution that we need and the only solution that could achieve our salvation. You see, only God could keep the law perfectly, and so God had to come. Only a perfect man could provide an acceptable sacrifice. Only a perfect man could represent man and take our place, and so Jesus became a man. And there's a profound mystery and a wisdom in this. It blows me away that I wonder sometimes, did Satan himself understand this? Did he see this coming? Because he helped hasten Jesus to the cross. And I don't know, maybe he did understand, he just hated Jesus so bad he couldn't help himself. But I also have to wonder, because this wisdom of the incarnation, this wisdom of the gospel story, that God's justice and mercy would be both satisfied at the cross, resulting in rescue, resulting in salvation, resulting in the defeat of Satan, I wonder if Satan didn't quite see it coming, because he doesn't have the wisdom of God. But God's plan of salvation was perfectly accomplished through this profound wisdom, the incarnation of Christ and his death on the cross. This is why Paul calls the gospel the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. It's a longer passage, but I want to read it for you. Just listen to the emphasis on wisdom here. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The God that we worship is perfectly infinitely, incomparably wise. And this wisdom is on display in the coming of Christ and in his redemptive mission. Paul cries out in worship in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That should be the flavor of our worship and our joy at Christmas. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. Who else would have come up with a plan like this? Who else could have found a solution to to reconciling God's holiness and his justice, his wrath against sin, and his mercy, his love for sinners, and his desire to save? How could anyone come up with a plan for salvation that would fully demonstrate the fullness of God's attributes with no contradiction? 
That's the wisdom of God. That's the gospel. It's by him taking on flesh and coming to earth. And we can rejoice in such wisdom. A God who is sovereign but lacks the wisdom to know the best way forward is not a God we could rejoice in. But as we consider the Christmas story, the timing of Christ's birth, the brilliant solution of the incarnation, all of this testifies to his perfect wisdom. Our God knows best. He is wise. And by his great wisdom, he has provided salvation for us. He has overcome the enemy. He has secured eternal glory and a kingdom for Christ. And that should fuel joy in our hearts. The coming of Jesus in the world displays the providence of God. It demonstrates the wisdom of God. But there's a third way. The Christmas story really should fuel God-centered joy. Third, the coming of Jesus into the world reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of God. There are some who may be tempted to think of God as stern, as maybe frustrated with his children, who may think of him as a reluctant savior, as if Jesus had to die on the cross to somehow convince the Father to love us. But the coming of Jesus into the world tells a different story. In his mercy, he has looked on us with compassion. That's the heart of God. And the coming of Jesus into the world displays and reveals that mercy that God looked upon us and he saw our need. He saw our weakness. He saw our suffering. He saw our ignorance, our spiritual deadness and blindness. He saw us in slavery and captivity to sin. He saw us destined for death and for hell. And he was moved with pity. And it is this mercy that motivated his sending of Jesus into the world. We see this mercy. If you're still in the Gospel of Luke, just flip back to chapter one and look at the song of Mary. Mary highlights this mercy. Chapter one, verse 49, Mary sings with joy. The text says Mary said, but I can't help but thinking she said it in tune. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. As Mary hears this promise that she will give birth to the Messiah, she sings about the mercy of God. Look down in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary indicates that this mercy of God is not just a momentary impulse, that all of a sudden God felt this instinct of mercy and said, I'm going to send my son. She knows that this mercy is the same mercy that was talked about in the Old Testament. It's a mercy that's thousands of years old. It's a mercy that even precedes the creation because it is a mercy that has been a constant feature of the heart of our God. He is merciful. It's like what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 34. He displays his glory and passes before Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And yes, there is more, but don't miss the fact that the first thing out of God's mouth is that he is merciful. 
We see this mercy in Zechariah's song as well, as if Mary singing about God's mercy isn't enough. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, also sings of this mercy when he hears the good news that not only is his elderly wife Elizabeth going to have a child, but the reason why that child matters because, is because he will prepare the way for another child, the Messiah who's coming into the world. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 72, We'll back up a little bit. I'm going to start from the beginning of Zechariah's song. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Look down at verse 76. You, child, speaking to his unborn son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the mercy that God announced to Moses. It's mercy that Mary sings about. It's mercy that spills forth from Zechariah's lips as his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosened. He's able to speak finally. This is what he says. He testifies to the mercy of God. When we think about the Christmas story, it should show us what our God is like, that he has a heart of mercy towards us. Not only does it show his mercy, but it also displays his love. As God works out his plan for salvation, this mercy moves him to come, and it is in love that he lays down his life for us. It's a love that is sacrificial. It's a love that is generous. It is a love that is personal, and it is this love that drives Christ. It is this love that motivates the Father to send Christ Again, if we think of the atonement of Jesus on the cross as somehow persuading God to love us, that's backwards. The atonement proves that God does love us. He's the one who planned it and who sent his son in love to secure our salvation. This love precedes and precipitates the work of Christ. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifest. It was displayed. It was revealed. It was proven. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the manifestation of the love of God. That tells us about the heart of God towards his children. Listen, there are times, there are moments where you may be tempted to doubt the love of God. Perhaps when you are suffering. Perhaps when you feel the weight of sin and guilt and condemnation. You will be tempted to wonder if God really is loving and if he actually loves you. Christmas can help answer that question. Behold the baby in the manger. This is the love of God on display. Consider that child who would grow 
who would live a perfect life and lay down his life for you. Consider the man on the cross. This is the measure of God's love for you. These are the shocking lengths to which God has reached to save you. These are the shocking depths to which he has suffered to bring you salvation. This is the expression of God's love for you. The heart of God is revealed to us in the coming of Christ. It reveals his mercy. It reveals his love. And it reveals his grace. Because none of this is deserved. None of this have you or I earned in even the slightest degree. None of this could be purchased or secured by our own efforts. All of this is a gift that completely flows out of this heart of God who gives simply because he wants to, simply because he delights to, because he is gracious, that he chooses to redeem and restore, to rescue people like us. John chapter 1 John doesn't tell the traditional Christmas story about the baby being born in a manger, but he does talk about Jesus coming into the world. John 1.14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I think that little phrase right there would be sufficient for us to meditate on throughout this entire Christmas season. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. From his fullness, that is what we have received. Grace upon grace. Undeserved favor, unearned blessings, rich benefits of salvation granted to us through no merit of our own. It's all from God. It is all through Christ. And it is all for us if we will simply believe and receive it by faith. We receive the grace of forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, the grace of adoption into God's family, a new home, a new identity, a new place of belonging. We receive the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling with us, in us, energizing us, changing us, strengthening us, preserving us. We receive the grace of eternal life, a new nature, as God breathes into us the light of life. The coming of Jesus reveals the heart of God, that he is a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of grace. It has all been granted to us through this child, this little baby that the shepherds would go and visit in a town called Bethlehem. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And this great joy, the greatness of our joy really is rooted in the greatness of our God. Think about that phrase. That's something that I would commend you to meditate upon that the greatness of our joy is rooted in the greatness of our God. This is a God-centered joy. It is a joy in God, in who he is in and of himself. And we would not know this about God. We would not be able to understand some of these things about God. We would not appreciate or be able to experience some of these aspects of God if it were not for the sending of his son into the world. We would not know the glory of his providence the glory of his wisdom, the true nature of his heart towards us, apart from what he has done. 
And this is astonishingly good news. So what's the condition of your soul this December? Has your joy perhaps been diminished by the sorrows and the cares of life in a broken world? Have you perhaps taken your eyes off of Christ? Maybe you've been looking for joy in the wrong places and what the world has to offer, human relationships, personal successes. Have you become distracted perhaps by the busyness and the noise of life, just putting one foot in front of the other, trying to survive? A.W. Tozer once wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let this Christmas be a catalyst for your joy by reminding you who God is, what God is like, what God has done. Meditate on God. Consider God. Consider his providence Reflect on his wisdom. Meditate on his heart towards you, his, his mercy and his love and his grace. And let those truths warm your soul and stir up joy even in the midst of sorrow. Let those truths stir up joy as you are reminded that we have a truer and a better treasure than anything that the world has to offer because God has revealed himself, given himself to us. And let that joy in God trickle down and infuse all of the lesser joys, all of the lesser goods, all of the lesser gifts. Let that joy in God give meaning and significance to all of those other things. Trace the rays of the sun back to the source. Follow those rivers of mercy back to their spring and consider God. Let this Christmas be a season for God-centered joy. Good news of great joy. A savior is born to us today. And this tells us a lot about the God that we worship. Would you pray with me? Father, it is such an impossible task to adequately explain or describe your glory, your majesty. You are beyond comparison. There is a depth to you that we cannot comprehend or understand. But oh, how it thrills our soul to try. Lord, I ask for this church that as we go through the traditions and the, the activities of Christmas this year, as we deal with challenges and difficulties and loss, as we try to navigate just all of the clutter of life, Lord, I pray that we would have a strong sense of God that we would be reminded of who you are and what you are like, what you have done. And I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on you, that the greatness of our joy would really be rooted in the greatness of our God. May we receive every gift as a gift from you. May all gratitude flow back to you. And I pray that we would recognize the astonishing good news that you sent your son into the world to save us. To us has been born a savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord, I pray for some among us who may not know you and they cannot experience this joy because they do not yet have eyes to see you. They have not yet experienced reconciliation with God through faith in Christ. 
Perhaps they've been looking for joy, looking in the wrong places, and the best that they can find is only momentary. It doesn't last. Even worse, sometimes our pursuit of joy, Lord, it, it, it actually leads to heartache and destruction when we look in the wrong places. I pray that you would help those among us who do not yet know you to recognize that the only source of joy, lasting joy, is you. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, I pray that you would seek them so that they would begin to seek you. Draw them into relationship with yourself that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that they would recognize this Christmas season that the path to joy comes through embracing Christ, this baby born in a manger who would one day die and rise again to bring the salvation that all men need. So Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself. Give us great thoughts of God this Christmas and thereby fuel our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.